0: Hello, this is Past Caring, a podcast from the Library and Archive at the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN. I'm Frances Reed and I work on the RCN's public events and exhibitions. COVID has meant that we've had to keep our doors shut. But you can still visit us virtually, where we've put lots of exhibitions and events online. Just search RCN Exhibitions and Events. As always, our aim is to shout loudly about the incredible and essential work that nurses do now and throughout the centuries, and so this is a podcast that uses history to understand how we think about health and care today. This episode is about public health, and we're taking our 2016 exhibition, A Healthful Form of Work, as a starting point. We'll be hearing from public health nurses, including our very own Ying Butt, Associate Director of Nursing, who'll tell us about a poisoned chalice of a project and the patient who transformed her understanding of care. We'll also go back to the 19th century with historian Dr Sally Frampton and hear about the history of vaccination resistance, starting with smallpox. But first, a conversation with two women that have made public health their life's work Helen Donovan is the RCN's professional lead for public health, and Helen Bedford is professor of children's health at UCL. They both have a special interest in vaccination. When I spoke to them, I asked Helen Bedford if she could have a go at explaining what public health actually is.
1: Public health is big picture stuff. This isn't just about curing diseases. It's much broader than that. So it's about why do people come in well? We know there are many influences on health and we need to understand those. And importantly, the social determinants of health and the way some people describe it is think of yourself at the end of a river and you're rescuing lots of people from the river who've either fallen in or even jumped in and you keep pulling them out, but you need to find out why are they all in the river? So it's about going to the other end of the river to find out what's happening and put in place measures to prevent that. And to do that, we've got to involve everybody. So it's not just about health, it's about education, it's about housing, it's about justice, and it's about using data and epidemiology and evidence about what works to stop people falling or jumping into the river.
0: Beautiful. I love that analogy. Helen Donovan.
2: Absolutely. I would completely agree. And it's that upstream approach, isn't it? That's what we sort of this analogy of the river. How can we stop things happening? How can we prevent people from becoming unwell? How can we help protect them from diseases and from infections and from adverse events? But I sometimes wonder, you know, we sort of say, well, what's the difference with public health? And actually public health is part and parcel of all what that we do and, and absolutely should be. So trying to sort of like differentiate between what we mean by public health and wider health and social care, it's probably not that helpful because public health is part and parcel of everything we do, but not just healthcare. So, you know, access to shops, access to transport, The sort of education that somebody might get, whether they're able to speak the language, all of those sorts of things are part of the wider public health.
0: So, Helen Donovan, you'll remember the exhibition that we put on on public health nursing, and it told a sort of short history of public health nursing. And so district nursing and health visiting featured quite heavily Helen Bedford, I want to just go to you because I want to ask about your early career in health visiting and what that experience taught you as a nurse.
1: Gosh, well, that's an awfully long time ago. (laughs) So I did a degree in nursing. This was at a time when they were unusual degrees in nursing. It was a so-called experimental degree. And the approach was a life course approach Interestingly, so before we even set foot in a hospital ward, we visited a family with a young baby and we visited them on a regular basis to, you know, to just to be in a family home and to understand about some of the influences on health. But later on, my experiences of being a health visitor, I worked in a disadvantaged area of North London. They've taught me a huge amount and I can honestly say that I draw on what I learnt every single day about the reality of people's lives. So parents want the best for their children, but sometimes doing the best for your children is a struggle because of all the other things that intervene. And I would actually say that I think everybody that works in a hospital should spend time in the community because you really do not understand what it's like unless you've been there and been in people's homes.
2: I would completely agree. And my, I mean, my background as well. I've got a health visiting um, background, but different to Helen, in as much as I, I trained as a registered general nurse, and then went on to do health visiting. And I think fundamentally, and this is why I really believe that public health needs to be part and parcel of everything that anybody does in nursing, but all wider healthcare um, delivery because understanding all of those influences and understanding how people live and operate within their families and, you know, the reality of having a young child and how that might influence what you do and how you you manage your life. And, of course, particularly working with, and, and my experience similarly, working in disadvantaged areas, but areas where there was huge diversity within population so people who didn't speak English or you know come from different cultural backgrounds and absolutely being able to recognize and value different people's thoughts and beliefs really and when you're in a, in a hospital setting sometimes that can be quite challenging because you only see the individual you may see the families coming and going but actually seeing somebody within their home environment is so important and understanding what that, that means to their health and their well-being.
0: So we know that uptake of the COVID vaccine has been an issue uh, for some particular groups or in some areas of the country. Um, but before we talk about that specifically, I just wanted to ask, do we see these issues in other vaccinations as well, like some of our more familiar routine vaccinations? Because is this a new issue? Helen Donovan.
2: Well, it's not, really. And I think that's one of the big lessons, and we just need to keep that at the back of our mind. So WHO have previously talked about there being a complacency about vaccines, so we don't see the diseases maybe in the same way. So people sort of wonder whether we actually need to have those vaccines and, you know, even for conditions like measles. We see outbreaks all the time, but a lot of the public won't have seen them and might think, well, do I really need to worry about measles, for example? Um, and then there's the issue about access and vaccines being easily accessible to everybody. You know, life gets in the way for a lot of people. This is in, mm-hmm. in, in this country quite apart from the fact that if you've got lots of children and trying to get them all to the surgery, when they're essentially fit and well, because we don't give vaccines to children who are unwell. So that's a big issue. And then there's about sort of instilling that confidence that the vaccines are safe and that they're the right thing to do and that there's something that they should take up. So all of those issues are absolutely as relevant for the routine programme for vaccines that we give to to everybody in the population, and obviously starting with children, right the way through and and what we're facing with the COVID-19 vaccine. So
0: vaccination is not mandatory in the UK at the moment, and it relies on public health messaging to encourage people to take it up. And in some places like the United States, for example, childhood vaccination is compulsory. Helen Bedford, do you think it's a good idea to keep vaccinations voluntary and why?
1: I think we have to think about the context. The context is really important. So I think if we think about the UK and the childhood vaccine programme, we've got a really good record on vaccine uptake. So the first question is, do we need to improve uptake? Well, yes, we could do that. But The question then comes, is making it mandatory the best way to do that? And we know what we need to have in place for high uptake. So we need to have well-organised, flexible, family-friendly, accessible services run by enthusiastic healthcare professionals so that it's easy for people to access vaccines. Maybe think about offering vaccines in other places, not just health settings. I mean, look, we've been offering them in cathedrals, for goodness sake, Sending reminders. That's really important because often it's simply that people forget. When you've got all those things in place and uptake is still suboptimal, then maybe think about other things. But personally, I would be very sad if we made vaccination for children mandatory because I think it could jeopardise An already successful programme. But it might be different for different groups. So it might be a different thing for care workers working Mm. in care homes. But then I would argue, is that just about accessibility? Or is it just that, you know, if we have some conversations and listen to those um, questions that the care workers have, you know, would that go some way to ensuring better uptake amongst those groups? So I don't think it's the I think it's a bit of a a hammer to crack, crack a nut.
0: Helen Donovan, do you have thoughts on this idea at the moment that perhaps compulsory vaccinations for care home workers is a good idea?
2: Well, I I think I sort of think the same as I have for the children's vaccine programmes. And the, the concern is, and this is sort of if you look historically, if you start saying to people that they have to do something, there is an unintended consequence that they will feel cajoled, they'll feel coerced. They won't necessarily feel that they can go and have a conversation with a healthcare professional to address those concerns. And they may try to sort of get round the system. So I think my concern is that um, we, could see, we could see it backfire against us. And I think the other thing that's come out, so we know that certain groups um, within community, particularly minority groups or minoritized groups, are more likely to refuse or or reject vaccination, and what we know from those staff groups is the, well is that they'll say that they feel bullied or discriminated against, and this mistrust in what's being told. So I think even more important that you have that opportunity to discuss what those concerns are and what's best for them for their health, mm-hmm. but also in terms of how they protect their patients and and families and etc.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting that people are getting information from so many different places. So they're getting it from political sources. They're getting it from the media. So there's all this stuff swimming around. But then perhaps a conversation with their healthcare provider, with their doctor, with their nurse helps to... Clear everything up, helps them to come to the decision that's right for them rather than all these other bigger messages that are happening that aren 't directly relevant to them as an individual
2: yeah no absolutely, and I think you know this is this is again it's the public health um, issue and and this bigger picture. And understanding what else people are reading, what they're seeing, what they're picking up from the newspaper, from Facebook, from Twitter, from yeah. all of the other things that that people will read. Even if it's just their family and friends saying, you know, oh, well, I heard this and I'm a bit worried about it. Um, actually, that goes quite deep if it's your, you know, mother who's saying it or a favourite auntie or uncle or whatever and you might think well you know they they wouldn't say this for no reason Uh, maybe I do need to question it and that's why it's really important that you tailor conversations to what people are actually coming uh, to you with and what their issues are rather than try to sort of second-guess people.
0: Have you both found yourself having to do a bit of work this past year around separating what we're calling Uh, vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax and anti-vax movements. Helen Bedford, can I go to you first?
1: Yeah, I think this is really important, these these terminologies that have come into sort of, you know, normal conversation. Uh, Interestingly, I've just completed a a very small study with a student who interviewed 10 mothers who decided not to have their children vaccinated. And she asked them, what do you think about the term anti-vaxxer? And they were all absolutely horrified because that's not what they are. They're not Mm. activists. They're not, you know, extremists. They just have chosen not to do it because... You know, although I might not agree with them, they feel that is the best thing for their children. And anti-vaxxer is such a negative term. And I think we should be very careful when we're applying these terms to people. I don't actually like the term vaccine hesitancy either, because I think it's very negative and I don't think it's an accurate description. You know, some people, a lot of people have questions and concerns about vaccination and quite rightly, especially about a brand new vaccine against a brand new disease. What were Mm. we expecting? Everybody just to sort of, you know, put their arm out and say, jab me. No, they've got questions. And, you know, that's perfectly acceptable. And we need to be taking time to address those questions.
2: I think also that, um, you know, the the study that was done by the WHO um, back in, I think it's 2014, talked about this term, vaccine hesitancy. And I, and I think it is quite an unfortunate term, as Helen says, because if you were to ask anybody to take a new treatment or a new medication or to undergo a procedure, you would expect them to ask questions. That would be the normal response that you would expect from somebody um, you're you're suggesting a treatment to. I mean, I've certainly found even when people turn up for vaccination, and this doesn't just relate to the COVID programme, this is all all vaccines, they will have questions, even though they're there with the appointment, ready to have their child or themselves vaccinated. And it's really the onus is on us is to make sure that we give them time to ask those questions and then to answer them.
1: Absolutely, I think it's fundamentally important and I think nurses are trained to to listen to people. That's what we need to do. Ultimately, it's to listen to what people are saying and respond appropriately and not just launching in and thinking you know what their questions are in advance. And if you can have those conversations um, and listen to people and be empathetic towards their concerns. I think that does uh, develop that trusting relationship. And what's interesting is we know from surveys, opinion polls, about which professions do you trust the most that nurses always come top of the list. So we're already sort of one step ahead in a way. We've got that foothold that the public do trust nurses. So it's you know, immensely important to use that sort of starting point in having conversations with people.
0: That was Helen Bedford and Helen Donovan. At the time of recording, more than 60% of the UK population have received their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine. But as we heard in the last conversation, there are some people who remain resistant, whether that's for themselves, for Covid or for their children and the regular childhood vaccination schedule. One option that has been raised by the government is making vaccination compulsory for some people, particularly health workers. It isn't something the RCN supports, But compulsory vaccination does have a historical precedent in England. When I spoke to the historian Sally Frampton, I asked her when this was introduced.
3: It came in in 1853 with the Vaccination Act. And what that act did is it made it compulsory for people to get their babies vaccinated against smallpox. And if you did not comply with this act, there could be penalties. You could be charged a fine, even threatened with imprisonment. If you didn't take the vaccine for your child. So parents were, after that point, legally obliged to vaccinate their children. And did people go to jail? Uh, Yes, there was a few cases. It was was quite patchy how it was enforced across the country. There was a big regional disparity in terms of how much resistance there was to vaccination. So you had kind of hotbeds of resistance to vaccination in places like Leicester and Manchester. And sometimes even the people who were meant to be enforcing those laws wouldn't enforce them. Sometimes people did end up in prisons. So there was one quite famous case in Keithley in Yorkshire in the 1880s um, when some people ended up in prison for refusing to, to comply with vaccination. Mm. Um, so I think it was more the threat of imprisonment really that, that was used. Mm. It wasn't always enforced. But certainly people were fined um, quite frequently for not vaccinating their children.
0: I want to ask more about the smallpox programme. So smallpox isn't something that we have anymore. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about who was leading that programme in the 1800s and
3: who was administering the vaccinations? So as, as you probably know, Edward Jenner kind of invents a vaccination at the tail end of the, of the 18th century. Um, and his claim to fame really is that he moves us from smallpox inoculation where people are using a small amount of smallpox to inoculate themselves which is a a risky procedure a procedure that sometimes works but is very risky and what he does is he uses cowpox instead to kind of confer that immunity from vaccination and and pretty much that method is taken up sort of as soon as he starts publishing on it but in the first half of the 19th century the kind of organization of vaccination is very haphazard there's not really any regulation of it Um, there's not really anything even specifically saying that doctors have to do it so that kind of changes in the mid-century in 1840 you get free vaccination clinics for the poor although there's still not a great take-up from parts of some parts of the community who still don't really want to take vaccination from doctors. And then after that, when you get the kind of compulsory framework coming in, that brings with it a sort of bureaucratic sort of structure, really, which gives greater organisation to, to vaccination. So you have public vaccinators who are sort of doctors who have certification that they are proficient to perform vaccinations um, coming in. And then in the 1870s, you get vaccination officers as well, who are not doctors actually, but they are people who work for the poor law guardians, who are kind of given the role of making sure people take up the vaccination and are the people who, who look for the people who are refusing to take it. Ah, interesting. So when did it stop being mandatory and and why did it stop? So the kind of the death knell for compulsory vaccination is with the 1898 Act, which introduces this clause of conscientious objector which is where the the term comes from. So people can object to having vaccination for their children on a kind of moral grounds. So with that really comes the end of compulsory vaccination. But it it was kind of on its way out. As I said, it wasn't enforced very well in in certain parts of the country where there was um, not much enthusiasm for for vaccines anyway. And with that, though, that that kind of comes to an end. So
0: we've talked about how it was led by doctors and physicians at this time. Do we know much about... About the role of nurses in this, in maybe health visiting or encouraging mm. take-up, or when it started to shift from a kind of physician-led uh, programme
3: to completely led by nurses, as it is today? I mean, certainly in the 19th century, even then, nurses and health visitors were expected to play a role in kind of encouraging take-up, so they were seen as that kind of vital connection, of course, with the community, and played a really important role in, in encouraging people to take it. But I think in terms of it becoming a sort of nurse-led kind of procedure and practice, I think that's that's quite a lot later, well within the 20th century, mm. um, you're seeing that. And doctors are, are still kind of leading on vaccine clinics in the early 20th century.
0: Interesting. So you've touched on anti-vax movements a little bit already. Can you tell us a bit more about those and were they concerned about similar things that we're seeing today with anti-vaxxers and, and the coronavirus vaccine? Are they operating in a similar way? What do, we have, what do they have in common with what's going on at the moment?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely kind of parallels. I mean, one thing that I find really interesting is this idea of... Um, Tissue from animals being used in the vaccine being a major concern. And this goes all the way back to to Edward Jenner, who was kind of, you know, there's lots of satire of Jenner's vaccine, turning people into cows and whatnot. And you see it now. Even today, people have a lot of concerns about what's going in. And, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccines having things from a kind of monkey cold virus and, you know, how this can change us. So these concerns are, are kind of perennial, it seems. Um, Concerns about side effects, I mean in the 19th century you may have Good reason to worry about some of the effects of these vaccines when perhaps the hygiene is not necessarily at the standard we have today. And there were there were vaccine injuries um, that that occurred sometimes. But I think perhaps most of all it is that kind of connection between medicine and the state, Mm -hmm. and that particularly at the end of the 19th century in those kind of final two decades, that becomes a really important aspect to the anti-vaccination movement, this idea of the state encroaching upon your body. And it's connected to other developments happening at the time. So the new Poor Law, Contagious Diseases Act, all these things. And people are just very distrustful of this idea. And I think perhaps more so as well that it's, that it's children that are being targeted with the smallpox vaccination, which makes people even more um, antsy about it. In terms of it becoming a kind of organised movement, again, I would probably sort of pinpoint it to around this time, the, the kind of, 1870s 80s and 90s you get the kind of formation of sort of anti-vaccination groups the anti-vaccination league you get them setting up their own journals Uh, they publish their own pamphlets and whatnot so you get the kind of making of this sort of more organized movement at this time and they they often connect internationally with one another as well
0: am i right that this um the journal that you just referenced actually was in print for quite a long time
3: Yeah, I mean, the Vaccination Inquirer was... It started off... I can't can't remember what decade it was in. I think the 1880s. But it goes on until 1972. Wow. So, um, you know, the the nature of the movement changes, but it never really goes away at any point, I don't think.
0: And I'm really interested to hear more about what you said about children because you've done a lot of work on the roles of men and women in anti-vax movements, haven't you? And how mothers were targeted in particular. Can you tell us more about
3: that? Yeah, I think there was... Quite specific gender roles within the anti-vaccination movement. The fathers were often seen to be the ones who sort of took the kind of legal hit. So if there were fines or or an imprisonment, it was the fathers who would kind of be culpable. But certainly mothers were very much kind of seen as integral, really, to the movement and that it was the mothers you kind of had to communicate with to get this message across. And certainly those who were organised anti-vaxxers very much kind of promoted this narrative of children being damaged, mothers losing their children, kind of playing on this sort of Victorian sentimentality. And that was an important Uh, rhetoric to to the movement, I think. And you had women who often sort of led within the movement, which I guess was kind of quite unusual at the time. So you had people like Mary Hume Rothery, who was also a sort of kind of proto-feminist, but absolutely loathed the medical establishment because she saw it as excluding women. But she was also, you know, completely anti-vaccination as well. So you had figures like her who were at a kind of strange intersection of sort of anti-vaccination sentiment and feminism and other kind of radical movements happening at the time. Um, So
0: can we talk a bit more about publication in journals then? Because this is at a time when there's a bit of a, is it an explosion at this time of sort of print journalism, which had a massive impact on the kind of information that people were receiving?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, You put it in just the right words, really, this explosion of kind of mass media in the 1880s and 1890s, the the main thing is they become much cheaper. People can afford them. People from across the classes can afford to read magazines and periodicals in a way that they've not been able to before. And literacy rates are increasing as well. So with those two things coming together, you do have this kind of big explosion of print culture. And this is a really important opportunity for people who want to communicate their message and particularly to, to the working classes as well. So that kind of information or misinformation, we might say, today becomes available to them and can spread very, very easily and very quickly.
0: We've talked a little bit recently about the difference between anti-vax movements and people who are just not sure about the vaccine and have lots of questions. Has that always been the case as well? So say in the 19th century, it wasn't just people who took the vaccine and anti-vaxxers. There was sort of a middling group who were kind of discerning, concerned, wanted questions answered by the doctors or physicians in their
3: their towns or wherever. Yeah, definitely. I think sort of the anti-vax movement has become almost a kind of caricature, really. And it is it is a quite a limiting way of thinking about how people have thought about vaccines historically and continue to think about them today. Um, and, you know, people do have genuine concerns about vaccines sometimes and, and want to ask questions. And that was the same in the 19th century as, as it was today. People worried about side effects, people worried about what was going to happen to their children. So it is very much a spectrum, I think. And and people's anxieties come from lots of different places about vaccines as well.
0: So would you say that sort of fragility of trust in medical establishments or even political systems at whatever point in history, would you say that that's always been an issue? It's always been there?
3: Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, we can see it today. There's a lot of hesitancy in some minoritised communities. And I think that's because of a real kind of distrust of the medical establishment, because historically medicine hasn't always been very good at looking after certain communities, and we're seeing the results of that today. And it was the same in the 19th century. I mean, as we talked about, kind of women often played a really big role in these movements, and that's because a lot of them were very suspicious of of medicine at this time and, and the working classes as well. Vaccination is really always about politics as well. Dr Sally Frampton.
0: You're listening to Pass Caring, a podcast from the Royal College of Nursing Library and Archive. And if you've enjoyed Past Caring, have a listen to Nursing Matters, the new fortnightly podcast from the RCN's Professional Nursing Committee. In each episode, Rachel Hollis is joined by special guests to unpack nursing news, discuss professional issues and meet some of our members who are at the forefront of developing nursing practice and the profession. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Someone who has taken on public health nursing with an energy and enthusiasm that is hard to match is RCN Associate Director of Nursing, Ying Butt. She's been a nurse since 1979, starting her nurse training in Miami and then finishing it in Croydon, South London. So as you can imagine, she's seen many changes throughout her career and taken on a real range of nursing roles. I asked her what had drawn her to public health nursing in
4: the first place. The interest actually was sparked long before I even contemplated coming into nursing and it started as a six-year-old. Firstly, my mother, who had been a teacher, decided to go off and train to be a midwife and a nurse. And I simultaneously went to live with her sister and her husband, who was head of public health for the area that we lived in.
0: Can you just tell us where that was, Ying? Sorry.
4: I spent my formative years in Jamaica, as you may be able to tell from my accent. So as a six-year-old, I was living in a small town in one of the parishes in Jamaica. And this is where my uncle was head of public health and this greatly influenced me. I would have an opportunity to go and visit or sit with him in his office at the health center And being the nosy person that I was as more of a six year old than I am now, possibly, I went peeking around the side to see what the nurse was doing. And I saw the public health nurse actually heating a needle on a flame. And this gives my age away because what she was heating was the needle for the BCG test to see whether you had the sufficient levels and would require a BCG or not. And that really sparked an interest and then the other thing that happened as well was my father had a friend who'd been a nurse in brazil and during the summer break she had returned and was showing her cine film of her experiences in brazil and it was a nurse working in a very different environment helping people who were very poor around their eating habits and how to be healthy and that really interested me. And so that's where the interest was sparked for for me in terms of public health nursing.
0: So you have these formative years in Jamaica, but then you train in Miami, and this is in the 1970s, and then you qualified in Croydon. So I can't imagine any more different places to spend your early nursing career, particularly in the context of public health. Presumably, these places all have very, very different health needs. So how did your role shift when you changed environment?
4: Yes. So I I started my nurse training in, in Miami. And given my foundation in public health interest in Jamaica, I had that as a background, as my goal of where I wanted to go as a clinician. And for me in Miami, there was not at the time the knowledge and experience and expertise around nurse training and public health when I went on to initiate my degree course. So one of my course tutors suggested coming to England and I simultaneously had seen some patients in my services there who were Miccosukee Indians. And if you've ever been to Florida, you would have been to the Everglades and these are a group of American Indians who had rights for living in Florida. And I started to notice that they had issues around alcoholism, but there was nowhere for me to take it. So it was a natural transition coming to England where you had the London School of Tropical Hygiene. Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Indeed, yeah. that's the one where I could potentially undertake training, but I needed to complete my general nurse training. And that's where I made the transition transition to Croydon, because that's where I got in to do my general nurse training. And indeed, in Croydon, it was a very different environment. You know, where I was in Miami, it was a big city with lots of facilities, lots of infrastructure to support, but also hidden beneath that were people who were very needy. There were homeless people, there were, you know, individuals who, you know, had addictive behaviours. And so coming to Croydon, was the first time I had been in an environment where it was a largely Asian population. So I had to learn and have a better understanding around the cultural norms and practices for some of the Asian population that I was serving as a clinician and identifying then that some of the challenges that they faced were very much linked to diet and cardiovascular challenges and needing to shift the way in which I care to align it with the needs of the population that I was uh, serving at the time.
0: So this makes me think that it's quite, at your role as a nurse, it's quite, um, it's quite personal, isn't it? You're sort of getting involved in some very personal decision making that individuals are making about how they live their lives, like you just mentioned with diet, smoking, exercises, how much alcohol they're drinking. It's about culture change then, isn't it, with them? So is that a really difficult thing
4: to achieve? On one level, culture change can be difficult, but on another level, there are ways of approaching it that ensures that it's to some extent seen as an easy transition to make. And I think a particular example I'd like to bring to you, and there are several that I've had over my several years of working, but one sort of stands out for me, And it was supporting a major London foundation trust to go smoke-free.
0: This is at Guy's and St Thomas' Hospital, where you're talking about now. Yes,
4: it is indeed. The terminology that was used with me was, you've been given a poison chalice. I did not see it as a poison chalice. I saw it as a real opportunity to try and make a big difference. Because what I knew then and now is that the impact of smoking is one of the most preventable causes of ill health. It was really about, I guess, perhaps the the three C's, collaboration, communication and commitment. You cannot collaborate enough when you're undertaking a major change. It's about change in attitude, in behaviours, in knowledge and understanding. And the significant individuals that had to be, I guess, collaborated with were users of the service and clinicians delivering services and then of course our strategic board. And so the board asked me to deliver this work but I was under no illusion that there would be individuals on the board who would be very anti. And indeed, they were. Mm-hmm. So part of it was actually convincing those individuals of what the data, the statistics are for that organisation around the numbers of patients, for instance, who were coming in with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So It's a breathing disorder. So what was it costing the NHS or that organisation to treat those patients? What were the outcomes? that we had seen in terms of some of the treatments and what is the difference that them actually the patients ceasing smoking could could make and also finding users who were initially anti but through workshops and education actually then recognize the benefit of becoming smoke free firstly on an individual level and then across the system. And the system then involved not just health colleagues, but public health colleagues, local authority colleagues, and within the environment, everybody right the way from board to frontline. And when I say frontline, it involved porters having champions, where everybody saw it as their responsibility to support the smoke-free environment.
0: And was there resistance? Did you get resistance Oh, absolutely! To, to that campaign? Oh,
4: absolutely. I can think straight away, an individual who remained nameless, but was a, a senior executive <laughs> medical clinician who was very anti. And in the end, um, despite all my data showing statistics, benefits, outcomes, we agreed to disagree. And so in the end, what I did was I asked this individual, could they nominate somebody else from within their team who could support it? Because everybody else around was supportive of it. And indeed, this individual did nominate someone from their team.
0: Were there people that resisted it who were non-smokers?
4: No. Interestingly, I don't think there were any, from my recollection, who were non-smokers. I think for those who were non-smokers, the main concern would have been around are we taking away people's human rights? Mm. And for me, the issue was that our human right is to have clean air to breathe, it is not our human right to have access to a cigarette or whatever it is that we choose to smoke at that time.
0: yeah, I love that story I'm glad you you told us about it, and I think anyone who's been to that hospital who lives in London um, you see the signs everywhere it's very very clear that it's a smoke free zone yes,
4: yeah, and I think significantly with this Francis is that the patient's users played a significant role. So most of the campaign material coming out from health organisations had cigarettes and crossing it out. Well, if you look at the signs at Guy's and St Thomas's, they were sunflowers, you know, so it was something bright and cheery really to engender that actually you're doing something really positive in choosing to become smoke-free. And we actually had a, I had a family where the wife had actually suffered a, a cardiac arrest And of course, that's often linked to smoking as well in terms of the the arteries being clogged up. And I went to the ward to visit, as I would do as part of this work, and met the husband who was really upset. And he asked me what my role was. And I told him about the broader role. But I then told him about the work I was doing around smoking cessation, thinking that he would be really upset in terms of his wife. And he actually said to me and I explained to him around the information that we know about impact of smoking and what his wife is currently experiencing. And indeed, he later wrote to me to say that as a family, they had all decided to give up smoking Mm -hmm. as a result of their understanding of their activity and how Mm -hmm. it had impacted on his wife's health. So for me, on a personal note, that was a really positive outcome, including the broader work and achievement that there was.
0: I read something that you had said in another interview, I think, when I was doing a bit of Googling on you. um, And you said that the people that you can learn the most from are your patients. Can you talk a little bit more about that and that as an ethos and a way that drives you as a nurse?
4: Absolutely. And this actually goes back to my early uh, training days in Miami. And one of the first patients I had an encounter with was a gentleman and I'm not sure what it was about him. He was in his early 40s with advanced Parkinson's disease. And it may have been that it was about the age that my dad was as well. So there was that connection emotionally with him. But there was just something about this man that I connected with. And Sometimes they talk about being in love with your patient. I don't think I was in love with him in the sense of being in love, but I just loved this man and wanted to ensure that I did everything to help him as a very young man to overcome the challenges of what it meant to be um, having to be experiencing advanced Parkinson's. And he taught me so much about the patient leading and you following them. So listening and engaging with your patient. And I think that experience very early on in my nursing career, I've used it throughout any work I've done, whether it be at local level or even national level when I worked at the Department of Health, in engaging with users of our service, hearing from them, understanding what it means for them and using that to inform the work. And then, of course, latterly, as I shared about my smoking cessation work at Guy's and St Thomas's, it was pivotal in the success of it. So, indeed, without patients, we wouldn't have a job. And so we have a responsibility as well in actually acknowledging the privileged place we're in to serve them.
0: What does a healthy society look like for you? What needs to change
4: or stay the same? Oh, my word, a healthy society. A healthy society is a just society. And I think we're a long way off that. I think the last year has just opened up in so many ways through Black Lives Matter, through the um, issues that they have been around the, the disparity, around the numbers of BME clinicians, BME individuals whose lives have been lost as a result of COVID, very much opening up about the inequalities that exist. And those inequalities exist because of the injustices that exist in our society. And until the various intersectional challenges that individuals face, are seen as issues to be tackled on an equitable basis, we will never ever have a healthy society. But I live in hope that, you know, with passing years, we've seen with successive governments there's a better and better understanding of what it means to have a just society, but also what it means to have public health leading the way in decision making around health and health outcomes. And it is with that, that I remain hopeful that a day will come where we will see far more justice than we are experiencing in our current lifetime. Preach. (laughs) Mic drop.
0: (laughs) Done. The brilliant Ying Butt. If you want to find out more about the RCN's Fair Pay for Nursing campaign, head to rcn.org.uk or follow the hashtag FairPayForNursing on Twitter. Thanks for listening to me, Francis Reid, and all my guests today on the Past Caring Podcast from the RCN Library and Archive, produced by Natalie Steed. In our next episode, we'll be delving into the history of deaf nursing, looking at how mental health services for deaf people came to be led, quite rightly, by deaf clinicians. This episode will be a little different and will be in a video format, a vodcast, if you will. But we'll also be sharing an audio version too, and we'll direct you to the vodcast as an option. So watch this space and follow RCN Libraries on social media to find out as soon as it drops.